Back in January, the union that represents immigration judges ceased to exist, at least for purposes of contract bargaining. The Federal Labor Relations Authority, then dominated by a majority of Trump appointees, determined the judges are actually management employees and therefore not eligible for union representation. But the board's leadership has turned over since then. The National Association of Immigration Judges is now trying to get re-recognized as a federal union. Now, that effort has two tracks. One is before the FLRA itself, which now has a majority of Biden appointees. The other is a case now pending before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Mimi Sankov is the union's president. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Mimi, thanks for joining us. And there's a lot to cover here since you are pursuing this on on two different tracks. Let's start with with the latest action that you've taken before FLRA, which is basically to to start from scratch and, and ask for recognition all over again. Tell us a little bit about why you have chosen that path and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jared, for inviting me today. So I'm speaking my capacity as president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. So any of the comments that I'm making here today represent the positions of that group, and they don't necessarily represent the positions of the Department of Justice, which is my employer as well. So why are we here today? Well, the uh, unfortunately, during the Trump era, um, the immigration judges were targeted for decertification. And um, we have been fighting to regain our certification in two ways. One of the ways is the filing of a petition with the Federal Labor Relations Authority to basically start over, to take what was a 51-year union and have it re-recognized because during the last administration, just on the same week as the election of the new president, we were targeted for decertification. And the unusual thing about that decertification vote is, I think, it it happened when there were no parties before the FLRA asking it to do what it did, because by that time, the Justice Department had changed control and, and was seeking to withdraw the decertification petition, if I've got, if I've got the history right there. Uh, just to be clear, there were multiple decisions that were issued by the Federal Labor Relations Authority. The first one, finding that we were didn't have the right to be unionized, was one that was issued during the last administration. But during the current administration, they have been trying to roll back that decision. And so you are correct to say that the current administration is has been doing its best to roll back any efforts to decertify us. Okay, and then let, let's talk briefly about track two, which is also a bit unusual as we were talking a bit off the air. Before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the parties are you and the Federal Labor Relations Authority. As you were telling me a little bit, FLRA is still fighting you before the court, even though the, the actual board is now controlled by Biden appointees. How, explain that a little bit for us and, and, and talk about what you're trying to do before the appeals court. Well, we had really hoped that the Federal Labor Relations Authority would look at the the facts of this case, would recognize that the Department of Justice is not pursuing decertification of our union. And yet we've been surprised to see that even with the advent of the new leadership, which is a uh, Biden majority leadership, that they have continued to advance arguments that we don't have the right to unionize before the DC circuit. And we're hopeful for a change in approach at some point. We haven't seen it yet. We've still seen the FLRA fighting 
to keep us um, decertified. And oral arguments in that case haven't happened. So I guess theoretically they could change their FLRA could change its position between now and whenever the case is argued. Is that right? That's correct. And we're hopeful that they will. Okay, let, let's talk about what the practical impacts of decertification have been for your workforce. What's it meant? We are currently facing 1.8 to 1.9 million cases in the backlog with only about 575 or so immigration judges to try to address that volume of work. The only effective way to do that is when the judges themselves are working closely with management to make sure that we can effectively handle that body of work. And because we are not currently recognized, the con- the conversations that you would normally have, the pre-decisional input of management isn't happening. So while there is some communication, it is not with the authority that our judges can bring through a full functioning labor organization to say, this is how we suggest that you proceed. No, instead, we can only make advisory comments, and um, they can either accept them or, or ignore. And we think that we can be much more effective as a team if we work together. And we see a lot of reasons why this administration a very labor-friendly administration would want to work closely with us. So we're always hopeful that the administration will take action to engage with us um, from a pre-decisional standpoint. Uh, I, I don't want to minimize the impact of not having a formal union in place, but are, are there at least some discussions happening with management as far as just day-to-day labor relations, even even in the absence of a formal union? There are some discussions, but never enough, given the volume of um, issues facing the court, the changing law, the volume of the challenges related to staff, um, how you address all of those problems. That still is um, requires a lot of communication, and we have nowhere near the level of communication that we really need. Just to go back to the D.C. Circuit case for a second, to, just to talk a little bit more about why you're pursuing that, even though you now have a, a, a board that you know is more likely to take favorable action toward you, is are, are there legal issues there that the court needs to resolve or, or prior board actions that they need to nullify in order to get things all in order to your satisfaction? Jared, part of the reason that we are pursuing this is not only because it's important for us as immigration judges that have been falsely and wrongly identified, misclassified as management officials, but we're worried because this type of reasoning that was used, which is basically non-reasoning, can uh, ultimately impact all other federal unions as well. And I could give you an example. So what happened in our case is that a full hearing was held at the regional level the regional authority at the Federal Labor Relations Authority looked very closely at all the job duties that we had and found that we are not management officials. She issued a 20-page single-space decision fully looking at our case and the facts and circumstances surrounding our, our union status. That was appealed by the last administration to the Federal Labor Relations Authority, and the, they did not engage in the same sort of detailed fact-finding and um, review that had happened at the regional level. We're worried that if politics is allowed to influence the decision-making and with the stroke of a pen, that type of level of detail, detailed analysis can be discarded. If this can happen to us, it can happen to any other 
um, union as well. So we're fighting not only for ourselves, but for the integrity of this process. And just to clarify on that, is it that FLRA's um, decision was worded in a way where it could easily just be grafted on to other federal employee unions? Or is it more that they set a precedent that, that a future board could repeat? It's probably both. Um, but the worrisome aspect is that uh, they just did not grapple with any of the findings that had been made at the regional level. And if you don't grapple with those findings, the facts and circumstances are the guts of a case. You have to look at the, the facts and circumstances to make decisions. And this prior Federal Labor Relations Authority did not. And it was criticized very aggressively by the um, dissenting view in that decision that was issued on November 2nd of 2020. Mimi Tankov, president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration, and over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. 
Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.